This is Pastor Matt at North Plinko Baptist Church. We want to thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Not Another Revelation Podcast. We hope you guys enjoy. As we get started, um, we're going to start up in Revelation chapter 4. I want to address why we're not starting in Revelation chapter 1. The, the arc of the book of, Revela- the book of the Revelation is that John, way back in, in Revelation 1... Here's a voice. It says in Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And so John um, then is given letters from, he sees a vision of Jesus, he's given letters from uh, Jesus to seven literal churches in seven literal places. We get letters to um, the, the church in Ephesus, letters in the church of, to the church in Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And those letters are dealing with contemporary issues that are going on in those seven churches. Now, they are uh, still edifying to us today. Uh, I think there's a lot of ink that's been spilled over whether or not those seven churches represent eras in church history, whether they represent the arc of the growth of a church, that they're different phases all of that sort of stuff. And I think that we just need to take it for what it is. It's seven literal letters that are written to seven literal churches, and all of them at all times through Christendom have been edifying to the church for us to study. However, most people come to the book of the Revelation to look at eschatology, which is future things, and those letters start us out um, not dealing with future things but today. Now, it is interesting to note that in the last letter, uh, it ends with, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquer and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Once the churches is mentioned there through the rest of the book of the Revelation until the very end. It's not, yeah, it's not mentioned again. Not mentioned again. So the church is not involved in what we're talking about, which is why... Most Baptist, most folks that, that kind of fall in the same theological, I guess, color as we are, would be what uh, technically is referred to as a futurist, which means that we believe that everything written from four forward is going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's literal that it's to be taken for what it, it says, and we're going to try to do that. So what we're doing is a technical term you may not be familiar with called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics means how do we look at the text, how do we interpret the text, and we're going to do that from a, a platform of being futurist, being pre-pre's was the term that we came up with while we were studying this on Wednesday night because we're premillennial, pre-tribulational, so futurist. As we talk about hermeneutics, one of the primary principles of hermeneutics is you have to understand a book's genre to understand it. That makes it really hard for us in an American context, a Western context, to to interpret the book of the Revelation for this reason. We can read poetry and we get it. So I can read Song of Solomon, I can read Psalms, and when I read that God, the Bible says that the earth is God's footstool, uh, I don't I don't struggle with understanding what that means. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there are some folks that that are silly, but it's a literal interpretation poetically to understand that what is being written there is that the earth compared to God's majesty is a pretty small thing. It's not telling me that God is some physical creature 
that is reclined across Saturn. <laughs> his feet propped up on the earth. With his feet yeah. propped up on the earth. Because, and we don't have a problem with that. Nobody realistically suggests that because we understand poetry. We understand getting a letter from someone. So when I read the epistles, which are, it's a fancy way to say letters, it's easy for me to understand as I'm looking at the book of Galatians, Paul starts out angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. he's mad. Who has bewitched you with this foolishness? Mm-hmm. When I, I'm seeing the arc of the book, I see what his argument is. I can read the book of Philippians and see that he's pressing, okay, these two chicks who are in your church, help them get along, please help them get along. I can understand the book of 1 Corinthians. Like, okay, guys, I don't know what you think you're doing here, but you need to get your act together. And the stuff that you wrote me about, I guess we'll deal with that. Or even the the private letters, the letters to First and Second Timothy, the two letters to Timothy, the letter to Titus. I get that because I get letters. I, I get emails. I, I understand how that works. I can understand narratives. As I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, I can imagine somebody standing around, especially Mark. Mark is, I love the book of Mark because it's so fast paced that I can picture somebody standing around a fire telling the story that Peter had told Mark and going, Oh, and then one time Jesus did this. And then, and then he was going along and immediately this demon possessed dude comes up. I can, I get a narrative. I get a history. As I read first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, some scribal dude sat down, wrote this stuff out. He's writing a history. I understand that. That's not hard for me to do. I get to apocalyptic literature, and I don't know where to put that in my in my mind. We don't have anything like this in English. Well, something that I've when I've studied uh, Revelation is like the best way to describe it is especially the way that John kind of in in one chapter he's, he he discusses this, and then like maybe three four chapters later he comes back to that same thing, and it's like it's the same image that he's picked up on, and he's. But for us, it's like reading from left to right. Okay, this is super confusing. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't get. Like we, I thought we already, I thought we already talked about this. And why is it back? And it's like the best I heard described is like is you're sitting in one of those like crazy, um, one of the crazy like halls of mirrors somewhere places, and it's like you're going around and you're seeing the same thing, but it looks different. It's like oh, oh, and, that, and then we come back to that one, and then I, and then I'm go, I'm still in the same same mirrors. Like I'm seeing the same things, but oh, I'm, I keep coming back to that one, and we come back to it, and then we talk about it, and it's like oh, but then here's something else. Oh, and here's that same thing. We can come back to it. And it was like, oh, okay. Well, it's like, it's, and he said, it's much more of a circular way of reading something than it is a linear way that we've always grown up how we read things from left to right. There's paragraph one to paragraph two, you know, A, B, and C, rather than the, he may go A, B, back to A, jump over to C, come back to B for a little bit. And it's, it, for us to understand that going into Revelation helps me out. And it's helping me walk through that and teach that to the students right now is because, hey, we may revisit these things later because he references these things, even if it's not, we've already moved past them. We come, we come back to them. And, uh, and so for me to understand that going back in is, is helpful because again, in my brain, I'm, I'm very, I want to go, okay, it's, it's A to B to C and then we're done. And that's not necessarily how this book reads. And- it reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever seen the Seinfeld episode that goes in reverse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and, and some people, my uh, Anne, my wife, hates that episode because she's like, I don't understand what's going on. And it, it's kind of like that where you're getting information that you're going to use later. Mm-hmm. And you really have to look for clues where John either says, okay, so the dragon that I was talking about, and you're like, what dragon? What, 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 or... Uh, one of the clues that we, we will see a lot of is where John says, behold, in English, and what he's saying, look. And so oftentimes that's the way he introduces new visions. Mm-hmm. 
remember that this is a series of visions, and so as John has vision number 13, there may be some reference to vision 11 that he's going to reference back to, and we got to catch that. we got to right. keep our eyes open. we got we got to flow through. So it's a lot less like a letter that somebody wrote that's really easy to follow. There's an easy-to-understand arc here. Uh, we got to look for clues that when John is being linear, so four days later, mm-hmm. we just accept it for what it is. Right. But when John doesn't give us those kind of clues, we have to kind of grope a little bit in the dark to, to say, okay, so what are we referencing here? Now, we need to come into this with the, the realization that the book of the Revelation tells us why it's written, and it's written so that we would have joy. Mm-hmm. Now, which is why, which is literally why 80% of the people, at least, no one goes to Revelation. Oh, you know what? I really need some joy today. You know where we're going? Revelation. Here <laughs> it right. is. Uh, no, I need some daily encouragement today. Very Revelation. Go, yeah, I don't see Revelation in a lot of like motivational calendars. Yeah, on the on the pictures that the Bible app gives you that you can post on your Instagram, Revelation's not on there very much. Not 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 <laughs> there a whole lot. You don't see a lot of those that that locust with the tail of the scorpion. Yeah, it's not on there in a time. calendar. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm having a rough day. My car wouldn't crank. My my hair looks horrible. So. I'm gonna read about the locust swarms. That's it. That sounds good. Demon hordes. Yes, uh, it's kind of what kind of what really gets me going. Now, so how does it give us joy? And the answer to that is is that we always, whenever we're reading the Bible, we're looking at what the original audience would have gotten from this. Now, if I am living in a Roman context and my home had been taken away from me by people who are stronger than me, better armed than me, and I have no defense against. And my children have been taken away from me and given to a good family to raise who aren't Christians. And my wife has been sold into slavery. And it seems like there is no justice in this world. That everything that I own, I have lost. Everything that I have, hopes, dreams, and desires have been sacrificed because ungodly men are doing wicked things nothing's going to give me more joy than to recognize that in the end, God knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Well, and to get to get a glimpse into each, even whatever understanding of heaven they had is probably the same understanding of heaven that I probably have, which is I can only know so much. But to get that glimpse of to have some absolutes of, hey, this is what it's going to be like, is something that like even teaching, which we we're, were in chapter five last night, but teaching of of what that, what those, those moments in chapter four and five of what heaven looks like, it's, like, if that doesn't give you chills, and I don't know what Jesus you serve, like, it's got to be a different one because, like, I see that and it's like, man, this is going to be, this is going to be awesome. This is the place I want to be. And that's where I find joy, even with, and to find, and again, if we're teaching the way that we're teaching, and to find that all the bad stuff, and not, if I know Jesus, I'm, I'm good. I'm not going <laughs> to, I worry about it as, and I don't want other people to have to experience that if they don't know Jesus. But me personally, and I guess a little selfishly, uh, I chapters four and five, that's kind of where I want to, I'm, I'm going to be hanging out in there. So one of the assumptions that we're going to be taking as we walk through the book of Revelation, and it is a belief that I strongly hold, that all of human history, including the stuff that's going to happen in the future, is being woven together in a way that brings God the maximum amount of glory. That literally God is milking human history for the most possible amount of glory. Now why that brings joy is there have been literally thousands of times in my ministry when someone looks at me and says, why is this happening? Uh, I can think of you know everything from small caskets, which there's nothing as a pastor that is harder to deal with than little bitty 
casket. Um, people who have been, uh, you know, their senior year get an injury. Yeah. All those sort of things, that, those unexpected, where those lazy Tuesday afternoons that are interrupted by a phone call that will change our life, the, that kind of moment. The quote-unquote moments where this wasn't supposed to happen. Yes. Those, yes. All, of the, all, all the conglomerate of those, those emotions and those moments. And, and it, it's natural for us as humans to ask the question, why? And it bothers me when Christians tell each other, well, it's not our place to ask, ask why. No, we ask why. It's yeah. okay. God, God's not thump- God understands where we are. In fact, I would say... Probably a third of the Psalms are David going, what the dang heck? <laughs> <laughs> so it's okay to ask why, but realize that when the dust settles, I mean, when you're sitting in the hospital or in the doctor's office in a paper robe, naked, and the doctor walks in and says, we're going to rerun these tests because I-, I didn't really like the... It's okay that at that moment, everything in you screams why, but... One of the things that the book of of Revelations does for us is it brings us home to the reality that God knows what he's doing, there's a plan in place, and you can rest in him, even if it is cancer, even if you do lose your home to foreclosure, even if um, you, you don't have the money to pay that bill, God still knows what he's doing. Right. And so uh, I think that in, in our Christian context, we, we, we bought into the, the false gospel of, well, if you're a good enough Christian, then everything's going to work out the way you want it to, and that's not the case. And that's not the case in that that's not how people's lives work out. And so I, I have had godly saints who have faithfully served their king for 80 years who call me over and I'm sitting in their living room and they're sitting in their their chair beside their Bible that's fallen apart because they've faithfully been reading it saying, what have I done wrong where I've got cancer or my, my knees don't work? Why is God not answering this prayer? Well, we talked about how and like how we like to read things is that, and again, again for me, it's like I want to see A to B to C. And for some reason, like we think of, well, that's must how, that, that, that must be how God works is that if we do A and B, then we get we get C or if we do A and B wrong, then we get punishment of C or whatever when that's not exactly like you explained yesterday when you had that, when some, when the guy tried to trump you with, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? It's like, well, that's not, it's not that it's, it's not exact. It doesn't exactly work like that. Like, uh, which, which is funny and not made a lot of that situation, but like, that's kind of how we want to think is like, well, I must've, I must've done something because that's how everything in our world works. It's like, well, if you do it, it's, you get what you earn, you reap what you sow, all of those things. And it's like, well, and like, I don't, that's not how that. That's not how that works. That's not how God, God's not sitting up there. He's like, "All right, you've been bad. Here's this." Like that's that's not that, that's not what I don't think that's what he's up there doing. Which is one of the reasons why I love books like the the uh, Ecclesiastes because it's so down to earth and says, you know what, it rains on the just and the unjust. Mm-hmm. Every into every life, trouble must come, and that's just the human experience. And so, anyway, the, the thing that we want to, as we step into Revelation chapter four, we want to. Our presuppositions are, A, that this is all happening in the future, and B, that God is in control, and C, that the purpose of this book is that believers through for the last 2,000 years could look at this book and see God is going to enact justice. The question of why does bad things happen to good people is ultimately answered in the book of Revelation, and I will say that when we get deep in the book, we're not going to like the answer. We don't want justice. We don't like it. It does. We feel uncomfortable. 
All right, so let's let's dig in. So we start out with um, after this, after what? After John got those letters. Mm-hmm. After this, behold, there's that that look. Ah, look, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I'd heard. So we we got to understand who is speaking. And that first voice that he heard is back from one ten. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, and that was Jesus. So he's already in the very beginning taking us back. Hey, remember this. So the same voice that he heard in one ten, he hears now, and the voice says, "Come up here, and I will show you what will take place after this." Now, since we're futurists, we believe after those the church's era, if you will, uh, after this. So what's going to happen next? At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, and around the throne were twenty-four elders, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, crowned in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and existed and were created. All right, so here we have the throne room scene that John sees, and it is very similar and very familiar for anybody who's read the Bible. Mm-hmm. It hadn't changed a whole lot from when Isaiah saw it, what, 4,000 years before this. In Isaiah 6... Isaiah wrote, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. In Isaiah, in Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, in Ezekiel chapter 1, when Ezekiel sees the wheels, uh, it looks very similar. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it's, it's, uh, it's a, it is the throne room. Yeah, for sure. And so the thing that we can take away from this, for me, is, is that with all the changes going on in the world, and everything willy-nilly, and nothing seeming like it was yesterday, I hear some stability. God's throne room is still the same. And currently, as we can look at it, like we can find encouragement today, is that right now, that's what it looks like, and that's awesome. Like That's still encouraging to see, even thousands of years later from John's encounter with it, 
thousands and thousands and thousands of years from those guys, those prophets, and those individuals encounter with this throne room. Even right now, that's what it looks like. That's what's happening, and that's encouraging. Greatly encouraging. And it's also encouraging because we will see. Um, we're we're going to get to join in on that. And so I think it's interesting that one of the images that's used here over and over is lightning and peals of thunder. There is nobody after thunder blows off has to be said, hey, did you hear that? <laughs> there, there are few things in this world that will get your attention as quickly as a blast of thunder. Well, like, and same thing, like it's similar with lightning, especially if you're, you know, like a few weeks ago, uh, I'm, we're out, you know, at a junior high football game and then a storm just kind of pops up out of nowhere and bam, all the flashes and craziness of lightning and nothing gets you motivated to get out of somewhere than you sitting on a bunch of metal bleachers and there's lightning going around. <laughs> like nothing gets your, your honey moving faster than that. Uh, but you see those things and, and you take notice, like there's some attention drawn there. So when anyone is exposed to the throne room of God and exposed to God, almost the immediate human reaction is exactly what you're saying here when we're close to thunder. It is unbelievable levels of fear. There's there's that instinctive immediate flinch that happens like that you can't I don't care how because you it's you can't time it you can't figure it out you can't you can't oh here's the thunder coming in the next three and a half seconds like that you can't it doesn't work like that like you can't do that and so anytime it happens it always catches you off guard you always have that whole body flinch which very rarely happens in any other circumstance. There's there's no logic. That's going on. There's mm-hmm. no, okay, so what happened there was there was a lightning bolt and the electricity seared through the oxygen. And so that's the, the air collapsing back together. So that's not a big deal. No, you don't <laughs> think any of that. You just go, ah! Through every experience, when people are exposed to God, there sometimes people, people fall on their face like they're dead. Sometimes people like Isaiah put their hand over their mouth and say, I, I'm, woe is me, which is, prophetically speaking, a huge statement. That is him issuing a woe upon himself, and the significance of that is essentially suicidal. Yeah. And so he's saying, I, I'm unworthy to, to live. Ezekiel, it, it says that he, he falls down, and again, he, it's like he's dead. Nobody experiences God, and their response is boredom, ever. Like, eh, this, yeah, it's cool. God. It's, I'll up? take it or leave it. What's up? And that tells me that if someone comes to our church and uh, leave here bored, then we've done a poor job of showing them who our God is. Well, and even all through the scripture, when they're not ex- necessarily exposed to God, but when God sends his messengers and sends angels to people, the first thing always is, hey, uh, please don't die. Please, uh, please <laughs> don't please, be afraid. Please, please don't die. Please just, just hold on a second. I got, I got some good stuff coming. And like, and that's not even, that's not, I mean, that's just the message from God. That's not even exposed to God. Like, just imagine, like, when we're actually exposed to God of how that's exactly going to work. And I just think of that full body thunder flinch, like, I mean, just times a million. Uh, and, and we can't describe it, but just that whole, like, the hair stands up on your back of your neck and all of those things just seems, just, just seems creepy, but also like all striking or all, all striking in the same way. I, I don't know if you've heard the story that Martin Luther, um, was, uh, a rich kid whose dad, daddy was putting him through college. He was going to be a, a lawyer, and uh, he was horseback riding from one place to the other and got caught in a lightning storm and hid under a tree, which is probably not 
best place to hide. In retrospect. But but in in a severe lightning storm where lightning is just popping off all around you, you just want to be anywhere except right there. Yeah. So he goes and hides under a tree and crying out to God in one of those, you know, stereotypical movie things, if you let me live, I'll I'll go be a monk. And like, he, like the like the like the intro to Bible Man. When yeah. he's, he's literally in a storm and he finds the Bible buried in the mud. Oh wow. <laughs> I haven't seen. I haven't seen that. You need to. I'll, I'll show it to you. He's out there. and He's in a storm. It's just crazy. He's got his. He literally has a briefcase. Looks like a lawyer. Maybe they took that from Martin Luther. I guarantee I don't, they stole that. Maybe from they Martin did. Luther's. But he's just like face down in the mud and finds a Bible buried in the mud. And he just all of a sudden. Why is there a Bible in the mud? I don't know. But all of a sudden he turns into Bible man. And it just completely changed my seven year old life. Like it was just the best. <laughs> well, um, maybe Martin Luther should. Maybe people called him Bible Man. Maybe maybe Martin Luther was Bible Man. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I think he probably had more of a language <laughs> issue. Um, all right, so we got we got to move through this, or we're going to be here all day. Uh, can't we can't go off too too far on Bible Man? So we see a rainbow. So a, behind the throne is a rainbow. Now this is a a little bit of a side note, but I think it's important for us to say in Genesis chapter nine. The Bible says that God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for future generations. For I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And so what this text is saying in Genesis is, is that God took the rainbow's origin is from his throne room. Mm -hmm. And so he took the rainbow from his throne room and said, okay, I'm going to put one like this on earth so that whenever you see it, you'll think of my covenant with you and you'll think of me. And I, that is super cool. And ever since I've, I saw this a few years ago, I've completely looked at rainbows differently. Yeah, that, 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 That's just a little touch of what the throne room of God looks like because they're they awe-inspiring. When you see a big rainbow uh, in the sky, it's just like I, um, a few months ago, well, this is probably a year ago, I was at someone's house visiting them. They they had a very tragic situation occur in their family, and the kids came running in like, "Come outside! Come outside!" And we ran outside, and there was this beautiful double rainbow in the sky. Oh wow! And they cried, and they they felt like it was God kind of giving them a hug. And then I drove from their house and Tilson Bend area back home, and there were literally all along the route people pulled over. Taking pictures of this double that's rainbow, awesome. like I'd heard that. Obviously, you know that in Genesis, but like the thing, but I hadn't, I hadn't put that together. Like that's that's incredible. That's awesome. So, I mean, I don't want to. I'm not going to take a picture of, it, of a rainbow put on my Facebook every time, but it's still pretty incredible. It is very incredible, and, and so just like thunder is so awe inspiring and logic removing and make makes us feel so small. Rainbows do the same thing because they're so big and they. It's just like someone uh, took all the colors of the rainbow. And put them in the sky. It's almost like that. Roy G. <laughs> so, uh, we see that rainbow. We see uh, the elder in the throne. So, we have 12 and 12. And, uh, the, oh, wow. You want to get into some interesting reading uh, throughout Christendom. If you read commentaries, all of the debates on who these elders are. And ultimately, we have to come down to And you're going to hear us say this a lot as we walk through the book of the Revelation. Uh, we don't know. I, to me, the best uh, way to, to talk about this is, uh, I read John MacArthur takes this position, uh, several older commentators take this position, that it's just representative of all Christians throughout all of history. Right. And, you know, you could 
the 12 and 12, you could say it's the 12 the apostles and the 12. You're just guessing. It could just be 24 Christians, as you know. I mean, it, like, I, have, I have no idea. I mean, it could be shifts every three hours. They, they, take, <laughs> they rotate. We don't know. <laughs> Um, and, and so a lot of times what we're going to, one of the, the ways we're going to deal with stuff is if the text doesn't give us explanation, if the text is silent, we're going to be silent. If the text doesn't give us a lot of stuff, we're going to say, yeah, well, it didn't tell us who it is. And so, uh, we can speculate, we can guess, we can, we can sit down and figure out. But at the end of the day, uh, the text doesn't say, it just says they're 12 elders. And, and remember that John knows how to say disciples. And he knows how to say apostles, and he knows how. So he says elders for a reason. So that being representative of all the Christians who would get saved, um, and it being you know the division of the twelve and twelve being maybe old pre-crucifixion, post-crucifixion. I, I don't know, but um, and you can get into real old. T- you can go twelve tribes or apostles. I mean, you could be all. I mean, you can be all over the board here. And what we do know is is that they, those 12 elders, um, are falling on their face. They are giving all honor and glory to Jesus. So they are, even though they're elders, they're, they're, which is a fancy Greek word for old people, um, <laughs> but has the connotation of, of, of people who are wise and in control of things, um, they're not trying to to show their wisdom at all. Yeah, they're not worried about who's up there and, and who's not. That's obviously not their concern here. The other thing that I think is interesting that we just want to kind of touch here is that they're throwing their crowns at Jesus' feet, which is very symbolic of uh, everything that that they earned in this life. Everything, All of the, the accolades, the, hey, man, great job, all of that stuff that we think is so important Today, when they are confronted with a magnified Christ, uh, it, it's just so much junk. Yeah, and and so and so many people will take that as, oh, well, we get our crown, we go to heaven. I'm gonna be, you know, Princess Matt or Prince Matt or whatever. I, I mean, it's 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 victories, not royalty. You're not royalty when you when you get to heaven because it's not there's it's nothing about you that makes you royal or that has done any, anything. You're you're still not worthy. You're laying everything that you that you may may have ever accomplished in in the name of Jesus at His feet because it was never yours to begin with, uh, which is I, I think not necessarily a misnomer, but something that I think people can get confused on is that you know I'm, I'm gonna get my crown. I'm gonna you know be bopping around with my scepter, or my goat, or my cape, or whatever when I get to heaven. Uh, when it's 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 that's not how that's, again that's not how it is. Uh, we're laying that down at the feet of Jesus because of the work that He did on the cross, because of the work that we're seeing played out. In heaven, we're putting that at, back at his feet because that's where it belongs. That's where it is deserved. Well, and I, I, okay, let's just be real here for a minute. As we go through our, our lives, and we can all sit around and say that, that we're doing everything to glorify Jesus, and we can, it feels nice when people say, hey, good job. Mm-hmm. And there are things, you know, you, you get a group of preachers together I don't care how godly they are; they're going to start comparing. So, how many folks y'all run on Sunday? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so how many people you baptized in the last year? What, what you what you given been <laughs> lately? I, I mean, there there are metrics that we use in this life. It's what we kind of point to at, as our our personal records. You know, this is this is what I've done. And no matter how much we try to live our lives where nobody cares about those things and say that we don't care, we care. Yeah, for sure. I think that in our life, I love that it's just 
generic crowns because if John had gotten super specific, we wouldn't be able to do this. We can say, okay, so for 2,000 years, whatever those metrics are have changed. I mean, if you're a first century pastor, how did you measure success or failure as compared to today? I doubt that they were looking at views on Facebook. Yeah. Or, or what? How many, what, how many podcast listens? Did yeah. You, did, how many podcasts? How many listen? podcasts listen to Timothy yet? Hey, hey, John, what you got? <laughs> uh, so there are things that we, we naturally want. We want those accolades. We want people, we want to be the evangelist of the year. We want to, we, we want to be the, the pastor that gets patted on the back. And who hey. presents that award, by the way? Who, pre- who presents, who sponsors the evangelist of the year? <laughs> Probably the, the state convention. The state convention. I, I would be willing to bet there is an evangelist of the year award somewhere. I was going to guess the Dove Awards, but that just seems, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know where else Christians get awards at. <laughs> well, you know, uh, we, we do here in our county, uh, we do the, um, the annual meeting. Yeah. And, and churches get the, most baptisms award or <laughs> the, the biggest giver to, to, to missions. The all I'd, of I'd, I'd have some I'd have some like comments, but I feel like this is going to be publicly broadcasted to people. I just need to bite my tongue. Yes, I think that's probably <laughs> probably wise. No matter what that that metric is, we have something in our mind that we're looking at. Yeah. To say I want to do that. How, how many? You know, for you, it's maybe it's how many people are on that Wednesday night room. Mm-hmm. Or, what is important to recognize is is that when exposed to the person of Jesus, those things become meaningless. And to the point, I think that throwing them at Jesus' feet is symbolic of we don't care about it anymore. Yeah. We really do see the silliness and the the fleshliness of needing human accolades. Because I, I really do think we're going to be shocked at, you know, in my mind, if I were to create a hall of, of people who... Uh, were successful in in their faith. You you think of Spurgeon, you think of Luther, you think of Calvin, you think Graham. of Graham. You think of these big names, right? And I think that the 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 missionary who went to the New Hebrides and then got eaten, yeah. and nobody got saved, but he faithfully obeyed his king. Well, you, and I think you can can think of, and I, and I think of you know a, a, an individual or two locally who. Um, who has served at a smaller congregation for years and years and years, and who has been faithful, who has been who, who serves them, who loves them, who serves and loves that community, and you know he's not he, that individual is not blowing and going, but he's but he loves his people, he loves God, and he's pursuing both of those things with with Christ in mind, and and so his metrics may look different, he may struggle with that, I, I don't know, but. Uh, I, I think that if, for any individual who just sees this and sees crowns, like you know what that you know what that is, you know what that longing is, and and again, when you get to heaven and realize that all the quote unquote stuff you do for Jesus, really, we're not doing we're not doing we're just sometimes I think you get the real, you maybe get the reminder that stuff for stuff's sake is just is is vain when really it, it's it's so it's part of this aspect of heaven is is laying down what we've done for the kingdom back at his feet again because that's what it was all about to begin with. That's the end goal. That's the the the, the thing we should have in the in the forefront of our minds is we're doing this so we can lay it right back at Jesus' feet. And honestly, like all things on the table, I don't I don't do that. I get much more focused on the numbers or the events or the things like that. And that's just because oh, we got to be successful. We got to do this. We got to do that. And and more often than not, in my in my own heart, in my own like you know being honest here with some conviction. Uh, it's it's I don't have that picture. I don't have that picturesque moment in my mind of I'm just laying this back down at the feet of Jesus anyways. Uh, so I'm going to do it as if I'm doing it unto him. 
rather than rather than I'm doing it to make sure that we get enough students here or whatever. And it's not that I shouldn't get enough, try to get students. I just say, well, I shouldn't just do anything and say, oh, well, who's here is going to be here. Like I need to put effort. And that's not, that's, <laughs> that's not, that's, I'm not going to swing the other end of the pendulum. Uh, but I need, I need to much more keep in mind. I want to do ministry that I'm just laying this back at the feet of Jesus anyways. And it is really hard to keep that perspective. It is. Um, I mean, for the, us who are in full-time Christian service, it's super hard to keep that perspective to our, the, the listener who's out there who is struggling to, you know, go to work from, from, uh, day to day, take care of the kids, that whatever those metrics are, you've got to balance, not just phoning it in, you know, so, I'm busting it so that my kids are successful. I'm, I'm, I'm busting it so that I can make some money so that maybe we can afford a vacation. Whatever those metrics are in your mind, you got to balance. I'm not lazing around and watching Netflix and going, eh, I'm just going to lay the food juice anyway, so who cares? <laughs> and the other side of it being so driven about ourselves that we forget that at the end of the day. So there's a balance there. You You want crowns to lay at Jesus' feet. Right. And Paul says, I buffet myself daily. I mean, he, he says, I die daily uh, to make sure that the gospel's getting out there. And, and Paul had no problem talking about numbers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but on the flip side of that, uh, we, we've got to recognize that it's not about personal accolades. And that's, that's just a, that, that's one of those things that there's a bunch of stuff, but there's some things in our lives that we never are going to get a check in the box. And okay, I got that one figured out. Yeah. I can move on to the next one. Okay, so I've got personal pride handled. Now we're going to deal with we're deal with anger. Doesn't happen. No, doesn't happen. All right, so rainbows. Uh, we've got that the uh, symbolism of the the elders in the thrones throwing their their uh, crowns down. So John is kind of in this scene because you've got from the throne coming peals of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Um, we're, we're previewing that there's wrath coming from the throne. Mm. Uh, we're, this is not uh, a sedate scene. Um, this is not a scene where uh, God is is just chilling. Hey, we're about to see some action. And I think that um, we're, we are going to see some crazy action over the next, next few months as we look at this. Uh, but he's seeing a preview of the divine wrath that God is about to pour out on the earth. It literally, from the cross to this moment in history that John is foreseeing, wrath has been laid up day by day by day as God in his mercy is withholding his wrath so that men would turn to repentance. And even given the best of circumstances so that men could return turn to repentance, instead they have chosen to be more and more and more wicked. And so then we see, uh, uh, again, where there's lots of ink being, being spilled talking about the fact that we have uh, seven lamps which represent the seven spirits of God. Uh, I think as I read that, some of you probably thought, wait, seven spirits of God? What you got? What's going on there? So uh, explain that to me. Matt, if you could. Well, uh, in, in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 11 uh, where, where some of those are, are, are laid out and, under, and put out there, uh, where it's the spirit of wisdom and counsel and understanding and some of those things, 
I think that's the way that I've studied it, and that's the way that, uh, that that we've looked at that we've looked at it as we talked through this. Was those are those that were mentioned, and I guess that are, those are still there represented in heaven. Uh, and, I, and, I, and if I remember correctly, it comes together to, to represent all the omniscient, omni, omni, all the omni things, omnipresent, omniscient, uh, omnipotent, all of those things that uh, all together God is all powerful in authority and presence and knowledge and all of those things that are represented there that that make up who God is. So uh, a thousand years before John saw it, Zechariah sees the exact same lampstands. In Zechariah chapter 4, we read, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me up like a man who's awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it and seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one to the right and the bowl to its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? Um, this is a snarky angel. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so here Zechariah sees the exact same lampstand, says, so what's up with the lampstands? What are they? And the angel goes, well, duh. I mean, literally, that's what he said. Do you not know what these are? And I said, uh, no, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I think that seven... Uh, again, you, you can get into all kinds of what are those seven? What are the seven spirits of God? And I, I think that we're going to have to settle on seven throughout the Book of Revelation. Indicates completeness. Mm-hmm. There's nothing lacking from God's Spirit. We don't need anything more of God's Spirit. And so the seven bowls are there. And then when when Zechariah asked, "What are the stinking bowls?" It, it said, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so we can know from the seven lampstands, which represent the seven spirits of God, that God's got us no matter what circumstance we're in. There's, there's literally, it's impossible for you to get to a point, no matter what's happened in your life, where God goes, oh, I, I, I don't know what to do. Yeah. And, and so if we're functioning through God's spirit, we have to, we can rest in the fact that it's complete and and God's Holy Spirit. If we just think about in our lives, the functions that the Holy Spirit takes. Okay, so um, I have always been amazed at funerals when I see believers just wrapped up with grace being poured out on from the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit comforts them. Uh, sometimes it's almost superhuman where someone um, has gone through the death of a child, uh, gone through the death of, of a spouse. That they, I remember one particular lady at the funeral um, looking at me and saying, I, I met him when I was, I was 14. I met him at the skating rink, and we've been married for 56 years. I, I can't imagine having to look in a box at the corpse of someone that I have loved and known and has invested in my life for my entire life. I mean, she literally, thats as she grew up, he was there with her, and now he's gone. And to see that person, the Holy Spirit, be enough. That same Holy Spirit functioning uh, in power. I mean, I, could, I, I remember being in Nepal, tired, uh, we had I was on a mission trip and we had spent seven days teaching um, pastors how to go from the process of studying the Bible to 
preparing sermons. And so the fancy way to say that is to, to walk from hermeneutics to exposition. And uh, so we were tired. There was nothing going on with our preaching that was particularly uh, awesome. In fact, no sermon uh, preached through in a translator is a good sermon. <laughs> because you have to kind of go, you know, so the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, and it's like, there's no momentum. You can't build and you can't do all of the things in a sermon to kind of manipulate the crowd where you you let things build up and then all of a sudden come boom and it's God. And all of a sudden you flip a table. You, yeah, or you flip a table. <laughs> you can't do that with a translator because you, you utter a sentence and then you go, and it just feels unnatural. It feels phony. It. So we had we were exhausted, we were tired, we were preaching through a translator, and we started, uh, while we were teaching, we had planned on going to uh, Kathmandu and to go to um, base camp of Everest, and we just had some touristy things that we wanted to do. And all of these, pa- the 50 pastors who were at the training kept saying, well, you come to my village, you come to my village. So we decided uh, to kind of jettison all the touristy stuff and instead just walk f- from village to village and preach the gospel in these guys' village. And they ha- all were pastoring little bitty churches of four or five. And so we, we show up at the first village, and uh, I- I'm preaching through a translator, and it was just an amazing moment where you could just feel uh, that electric feeling of the Holy Spirit moving. It had nothing to do with you. It was, it was completely outside of you. Your, your sermon preparation was completely meaningless, and people were rushing down the altar and getting saved. In fact, we had a kind of a government watcher that was driving around with us, and uh, I was up preaching in one village, and I heard a humvee outside, and I saw this guy come in with his arms folded in the back of the room, and I was at a point, because I was preaching the same sermon everywhere, where I said, um, the Buddha is dead. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi is dead, and I'm listing out all these people who are dead, but Jesus is alive was my, my build. But I'm, I'm again, I'm doing this through a, through a translator. So Buddha is dead. Exactly. Gandhi is dead. And so <laughs> I'm in the middle of that, and the, the government guy, the guy, he's in uniform, starts walking down the aisle toward me. And Patrick, the other American pastor who was with me, said in his mind he thought the same thing that I did. All right, so I'm going to jail. Uh, here you go. That's been it's been fun. Uh, and so he gets about three feet away from me and just lays out in the floor and starts crying out to God to save him. And again, I was shocked that he got saved. So the same Holy Spirit that's functioning as a comforter in this case is functioning, calling people to salvation in power and in authority. And that same Holy Spirit is the one that convicts me when I'm doing something that I'm not supposed to do. And that same Holy Spirit is the one that when God said, let there be light hovered on the waters of the day. It's just, there is nothing that the Holy Spirit is going, well, that's not really. And it counsels me when I don't know what to do, or I don't know where to turn in scripture or like that. I mean, it doesn't just uh, yeah, you can look at them on, on Google and things like that, or, or whatever. But it, it's it's there's something different about feeling the, the calmness and the peace that the Holy Spirit, Holy peace, Spirit yeah, brings to me. Yeah, left that one out. Yeah. That's a good one. So I think what what John is seeing here is that God's Spirit is complete. There's nothing lacking. There's no circumstance you can get into where God's like ah hmm. 
I need to whiteboard this one before we send the Holy Spirit to deal with it. Yeah, I, I don't and know. like I said, he, he, it, it just, it's just that represent that He's perfect in all authority and all presence and all knowledge and all in all of the things uh, that, that again that He's got it figured out. And finally, we see the the four living creatures. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Um, these four living creatures are, I guess, because Isaiah calls them seraphim. Uh, these are what we would call angels. Mm-hmm. Um, angels obviously come in different. They're they're, they're creatures. They're created by God. Um, they they are in the presence of God at all times. Uh, in Hebrew, that the ending I am. So in seraphim or uh, anytime you see I, I am at the end of a a noun, um, that just means that's plural. That's like an S in English. Yeah. And so it's a seraph is an individual, and so. A bunch of them would be seraphim, cherub, cherubim, like cherubim. All of yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's uh, so. Never, please, don't say seraphims. That's <laughs> that's a that's a pet peeve with with folks who the double plural, <laughs> double plural. Um, so these seraphim are around the throne. They're 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 crying out the holiness of God. Can't t- get through this without touching on R.C. Sproul. Uh, sermon on the holiness of God where he deals with this and says uh, the Bible does say that God is love. The Bible says that 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 God is a lot of things, but only his holiness is repeated three times. And and throughout the Bible a repetition of something is super important. Is and super if important. you do it twice it's like okay, it's a big deal. You do it three times it's like okay, hold on now. Bump the brakes a little bit. This is this is a huge deal. And so now we got to deal with what the word holiness means because in English and in the way that we use it, we kind of wrap holiness and righteousness up as synonyms. Like yeah. they're, they're the same thing. No, not really. Holiness just means other, different. Set apart. Set apart. So, okay, in the Old Testament, there's talk about holy, uh, the, the implements in the temple being holy. So there's like holy shovels. There's holy... Um, uh, tongs that are used to pick up coals. Okay, so there's nothing particularly righteous about that shovel. Mm-hmm. But the Old Testament calls it a holy shovel, um, not because it has a glow or it's made out of something fancy, because you can't use that shovel to go out and dig a hole uh, to, to plant a peach tree. Yeah. It's set aside. It has one purpose, it, and it is it's to be used to, to get the ashes out of the... the, the, uh, the, the Lost the word here. I, I can. You're tattooed though. It's the, the altar. The altar. <laughs> wow. Um, the oven. I like it. Yeah, the oven. <laughs> that big oven that they got in the middle. Um, no, I, to get the ashes out of the altar. It can't, it can't be used for anything else. And so the Bible says that we are to be holy because God is holy, and that means that we are supposed to be different, set apart by God. Which is weird because it seems like the church bends over backwards to be accepted by the world and be just like the world. Relevant. Relevant. What a <laughs> word that is used to destroy Lot. And, and you know, that's kind of like what we're talking about with balance. We don't want to be wackadoos. That yeah, I mean, you always talk about you've got to change with the culture because then you're just talking. If, you, if, you, if you're going to stay the same, that's why I think, you know, churches who are still doing ministry from 1980, you see them have some struggles because... It's not 1980. You know right. what I'm saying? Like, I mean, and that's not nobody's that's, watching hee haw yeah, anymore. Not, so you that's need not to slamming work. anybody. It's just saying like you you connect with the culture and how you said how the culture tells their stories, how we should tell our story and tell Jesus's story. 
And, and that just makes sense. It's just how you communicate and, and, and deal with people when you're doing the kind of things that full-time Christian service calls you to do. You, you, you not, and it's not stay relevant. You just, like you said, tell the story the way the culture tells stories. But we can't change the story. Right. We can't say, well, um, you know what? In today's world, people aren't really buying the whole miracle thing, so yeah. we need to go ahead and cut that. Well, it's more, it's almost, it's almost more pragmatic. Like, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have done a podcast. Uh, yeah. like, most church wouldn't have done a podcast. We probably wouldn't do the live. Well, maybe. it would have been really expensive to send those tapes out. Yeah, well, exactly. And, <laughs> and, and, and you wouldn't do all the live stream stuff that, that we do and that other churches do. Uh, I mean, there's just, it, it's different platforms of, of doing the same thing. Uh, and it's, but you're just, you're just, the means is different. So within that, that we're, we're trying to reach the culture, we're trying to uh, identify with the culture, we need to recognize that, A, God is holy, which means he is other in that he's without sin. Um, not only is he not capable of sinning, he, he is, his actions define and his lack of actions define what sin is and isn't. Mm-hmm. And so he is completely different. In fact, uh, my son and I were talking about a, a uh, idea of trying to kind of tie theology with string theory and um, the the idea of a multiverse. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, think of it this way, that instead of a multiverse, that we're inside of a universe, one out of many, a universe that's completely created from one person's, there's a super being that has made everything, and that would answer all the questions where that that physic, the physical world that we're in suggests that maybe there's a multiverse could also be answered if there's one guy who's just kind of we're living in the box that God made, and everything in it is by His definition. He's outside of time. He's not affected by time. He didn't get older. He didn't get younger. Um, when people ask the question, so. Um, when I pray, how does, how does God, why does God change what he's doing for my prayers? That doesn't make sense if God already has a plan. And I'm like, okay, you're, you're thinking of God as too small. He's taken your prayers into consideration in his plan. So, uh, he already planned that you would pray so that it would happen. I mean, it's all just, God is holy. He's other. He's different. He's not like us. God is not your papa. He's not your homeboy. He's not Santa. He's not Gandalf. I mean, think about all the different misnomers that people have got. And he's, and he, again, and it's at the same time, he's not Zeus and they're throwing lightning bolts down at anybody who does something wrong. Like, it's not that either. God is God. Exactly. Um, in fact, I think of all, in all theology, in theology just means Theos is the Greek word for God, and Logos is knowing about. So as we try to know anything about God, the main thing, the thing that the angels say three times, he's holy, which means he's different, other, separate, is God is God, we are not. Neither is any, anything. The, the creation is not God. The weather isn't God. Everything else is made by him and for him and... He is God, and nothing else is. If we could just start from that point, realize that all analogies fall apart at some point if you try to explain God or explain the <laughs> Trinity. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, the, the little cartoon that's, um, uh, that's modalism, Patrick. Uh, it, it's impossible to, to explain because it's so other, which is why the angels are saying it three times. Hey, get this. Any idea that you think you've got figured out in your head? No. 
He's holy, holy, holy. And because there's nothing else who was something, who is something, and is also something to come. Like that's again, that's completely foreign to anything ever. Uh, which goes in, which again, it, it it gives substance to the fact that he is holy, that he is set apart, that it's different, that it's other. I love um, when Donna tells me every year we we have this time when Donna's trying uh, trying to explain to children God, and kids are are so much more honest than we are. And so she she talks about how God made everything, and so the kids always come up to, so who made God? Well, nobody made God. He's just always been, and that for kids will ask the question, so. When when did he start? Everything in their experience and everything in all human experience has a beginning and an end. Mm-hmm. This is a concept we don't have. Yeah, who's God's mom and dad? Yeah, I mean, where did it all start? And usually when you can see the kids' minds just blown is when Donna says to them, um, the idea of time he made. Yeah. the whole Your whole brain trying to wrap around when... That very question is within his created being. We measure time by the circles of the sun around the earth, or the earth around the sun. Did not trying to be not heliocentric, um, but all of which he orchestrates. Yeah, he made the sun. Yeah, <laughs> by which we measure time, and time is affected by gravity that he made. <laughs> and so it's uh, the main thrust that we can walk away from. For is is that God is not only uh, all-powerful, all-being, all the omnis, all, all in control. He is God. He is Yahweh. He stands alone. And um, that could be a terrifying thought that there's some super being outside of time, outside of human ex- existence, um, but uh, it ends with, He's worthy to receive glory and honor and power. So not only is he all-powerful, all-being, all-knowing, he's good. And so... Well, and that's where we come back to where, again, the, the book of the Revelation is where we come to to find joy and to know that God is good, even though every bit of my being is not good. Every bit of all of our beings and my existence is not good. God is good. And that's where, that's where we find rest. That's where we can find joy. All right, so let's end it on that. Next week, we'll come back to Chapter 5. I hope you've enjoyed Not Another Revelation podcast, and uh, go serve your king. Thank you guys again for joining us on this week's episode of Not Another Revelation podcast. You can join us live in person each Sunday at North Flinko Baptist Church at 10 a.m., or you can go to our website, northflinko.org, to watch our live stream or check out our other podcasts, ministry information, past sermons, and past worship service. Thank you guys for tuning in.